Hi, I'm Maria Thea Harris or Velosos and you're listening to a new Sewing Save and Mending episode of Sew Organised Style Podcast. Grab a cuppa and relax. Sew Organised Style Podcast acknowledges traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connection to lands, waters and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to the Elders past, present and emerging. Welcome back to today's podcast featuring Lindsay, a textile artist who lives in Japan. Lindsay was recommended to me to be interviewed by Katrine of Mending Mayhem. You'll realise why when we listen to Lindsay's story and you have a look at her work on Instagram. Let's welcome Lindsay. Thank you for coming on to So Organized Style Podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I didn't know about your podcast until Katrine from Mending Mayhem Handle turned me on to it. And so I've been listening to a few here and there. Katrine's been really good in bringing mending to people through the podcast and also through Mending Mayhem. And that's how she connected the two of us. Yeah, she's really good about like the community building. Usually what I do is I get the person to tell tell us about their Instagram name. I used to say handle, but people would go, what's a handle? I call it a handle too, actually. Well, my name is Lindsay Ann Gretel, and I didn't want to have a internet handle that was too kooky or weird. I wanted my own name and I went on Instagram and someone apparently already took Lindsay Ann the way it's spelled originally. And it's like, I'm, I'm Lindsay with an E and then Ann with an E and someone was already Lindsay Ann. So I just tried out different spellings until I could achieve Lindsay Ann, thus the Z, but I'm still Ann with an E. Like I'm from the South in the States. And so my name is Lindsay Ann. My mother's name was Kathy Lynn. I have an aunt named Mary Etta. And so it was very much like the two name combination, like Southern girl kind of thing. And so I kept it, although I only go by Lindsay usually. My family only calls me Lindsay Ann. And it's usually like when I'm in trouble, like Lindsay Ann. <laughs> so it's funny that way. <laughs> so it's funny that way, but... That makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. I never really thought about how Southern it was until people started asking me that question. It's like, yeah, I do have two first names. <laughs> Very Southern. When you started being creative, on your blog, you talk about how you were the creative one or the one who did things differently to other people. Would that be right? Yeah. I mean, I'm, there's a reason why I live in Japan. Uh, I've always been the weird one <laughs> in my family. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I've always done something. Um, growing up, I like to paint a lot. Like I've never, I like to joke too. I haven't had an art class since I was like a fifth grader in elementary school. Like I didn't have a chance to really pursue art or do anything, but I paint a lot. I still paint quite a bit. I originally was going to go to school as a music performance major, but then dropped that, but then picked it up through various weird instruments. Like I took a stab at playing the accordion. I still play the ukulele a bit. I have a banjo. Like I do all sorts of weird things when I'm not embroidering. So embroidery is your first passion? It's the thing that's stuck the longest so far, if that makes any sense. It's really hard to enjoy playing music freely in Japan just because the tight spaces and the noise kind of gave that up. Like the banjo is really loud. Neighbors don't like it. But I've painted probably for about 10 years now. And so embroidery is kind of like a natural transition from that. Like I... Like if I wasn't doing embroidery, I'd still probably be painting, but I really like the tactile nature of like fabrics and textiles. And so it was like a nice transition that way, I think. I'm curious with the fact that you do painting and you do embroidery, 
are there times when you will embroider something in the image of what you've already painted? Not really. Although to be honest, I haven't painted in like one and a half, two years now. Like I've been doing a little bit of job transition, so I just haven't had the time. But I've been thinking about doing that, especially this winter holiday now that I have like three weeks to kind of play around. That's something I'd like to try out. I haven't really shared much of my watercolors. A lot of it was like children's illustration, actually, like silly little creatures and monsters. But also, but also like the mark making, like small repetition was also an element. And so I'd like to maybe try that again. Your embroidery passion, how did it start? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a long kind of roundabout story. Okay. I've always liked clothes and fashion. Like I'm definitely a clothes horse in that way. Like I've always been like the weird dresser as a kid going through like stages, like Lindsay's the punk, Lindsay's the hippie, Lindsay, like I always like kind of changed my style. And I was working on my master's degree like eight years ago now. And I was really bored and I kind of got back into painting more seriously then, but also I was like, you know what? Like the slow fashion movement was kind of taking off around that time. Yep. And so I was thinking, and plus at the time, like in Japan, not a lot of things fit me because they're all so small. And so I was like, I'll just make my own clothes. That sounds like fun. And so I bought a Singer sewing machine and kind of went down the indie pattern making, like Christina Hayes and Sonia Phillips and like indie pattern makers, like those folks. Yep. Got into them, made a bunch of silly dresses and silly cat prints and all sorts of weird things because Japan's got cool fabric. And then from that got into knitting. And so basically just like a lot of garment making. Yeah. But I really do not enjoy the process, like clothing making as much as the product. I really am really crap at following directions, to be honest, and a pattern and sticking to it. And around that time too, I was thinking, because like I've always kind of considered like, is this the most ethical thing I could be doing? And at the time I thought making my own clothes, like this is more ethical than like buying new, of course, but then you're still using new products to make something. And so I veered away from that maybe five years ago now, six, mm-hmm. and started to just really double down on like, if I needed something new, just buying secondhand or thrifting. And so I haven't bought new clothes in quite a while, but so I guess from that, enjoying textiles, enjoying painting and thinking like, what's a way I can be more creative with this and not follow a pattern. And then I kind of stumbled in onto embroidery that way, like kind of a free form style, big roundabout way. <laughs> I've looked at the embroidery that you have done. You focus on a couple of different styles with embroidery. Yeah, so like when I was thinking about how I could enjoy textile work, but not making garments, basically, I kind of, I mean, went down you know, the Pinterest internet rabbit hole and discovered the first embroidery artist I ran into was the woman, I think she's in New Jersey in the States, and her name's Tessa Perlo. I was really taken with her like secondhand upcycling and her interesting like motifs. I was like, that's really cool. Like you could, and I like reinvigorate something that was old and to new. And so from her and just, you know, clicking links, 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 links. I actually stumbled upon Sashiko that way. Yeah. I'd never been around it here in Japan up until like three years ago. I didn't really know anyone who practiced it or knew about it. And so it's kind of an accident that I ran into it, to be honest. And have you connected with people locally who do the same embroidery techniques? I mean, recently I have, although 2020, I mean, to be perfectly honest, devastated my social connections here in Tokyo. Like I just don't go out really. And so like they're there, we just don't meet as much. Yeah. There's not as many as you would think, especially like in the younger generation. I'm in my mid thirties and there's maybe a handful of us. Yeah. They're there. Hopefully we can hang out soon. (laughs) Yeah. I hope so too. Yeah. 
what type of textiles do you focus on with your embroidery? Yeah, I really kind of made the commitment to not buy anything new. And so from that, I mean, really only using vintage fabrics, but I just really love color, to be honest. Hmm. And my watercolors were like really bright and colorful. And so going to antique markets, vintage shops and stuff, like there's an abundance of, well, indigo, of course. Yes. But also just denim, like denim's everywhere. And so I actually use a lot of denim too, but people give me things like friends know I'm always looking for certain colors, like a candy apple red or like a really like vibrant yellow. And so like I have friends giving me things all the time, which is really fortunate, but yeah, here and there, like it's always a lucky find. And with the COVID situation, I haven't been able to go to many markets. And so I'm running out of fun colors. And so it's been kind of challenging, but also I guess it's interesting. Like I can only use blue now. So yeah. I really love the latest indigo jacket that you've been wearing. Each piece of fabric on the jacket is so well balanced with their colors and shapes. Oh, my coat. Yeah. Yeah, I um I didn't make that. His internet handle is Vintage Custom Man. Sasaki is his last name and his like brand is Sasaki Yohinten. I like to support his work when I can. I really love it. I'm actually really terrible at mending my own garments. Like I'm not the most skilled and actually pulling that off to be honest is something I need to work at but who'd be pleased you like the coat <laughs> exactly it looked great yeah I love it it's really warm <laughs> so when it comes to the embroidery that you do mm-hmm. you focus on certain colors yeah so the aesthetic that you're most comfortable with is where you've got high contrast yeah I love high contrast <laughs> I'm really inspired by like the abstract and expressionist, to be honest, like the Bauhaus work, like red, yellow, and blue, black and white, and just playing with shapes and colors that way is something I really admire. And if you take a look at any of the Bauhaus artists and then look at my work again, you probably see that pretty obviously, maybe. Yeah, I like high contrast shapes. The rule of three, like there's always like three shapes I play around with, kind of a minimal play for lack of a better word I guess like what's the least amount I can use here but also have the biggest impact is something I'm thinking about usually. There was a really interesting embroidery that you did which reflected the landscape that you see as you travel to work. Yeah I really love like sometimes I take pictures of Tokyo like how do you live there it's just all concrete and I actually really like it like I'm the weirdo. I love the Tokyo skyline like all the squares it looks like I'm living in a Lego village. It's just my thing. I love it. Yeah, a lot of my work is inspired by my surroundings, like the squares in particular. Yep. But yeah, that piece is inspired over the Edogawa River. I commute on a typical sardine can train every day, and it's like 20 minutes. It's not so bad. But for like five seconds, the sky opens up when we go over the river, and it's always like, look up. It's really pretty. And so I try to remember to do that. We, I mean, we've been here for, good gracious, going on like 12 years now. When we first came here, we, of course, weren't so fluent. We were in, I think it was Osaka too, actually. But we wanted to eat yakiniku, like the Korean barbecue. Mm-hmm. And we couldn't really read anything at the time. And so we were like, oh man, yakiniku, yakiniku. And so finally, my partner, Ryan, he went up to like a little police guy. He was like, we're looking for this. Can you like tell us, like, is there anywhere nearby? And he took us to the door of the restaurant, like up three flights of stairs. And he like knew the guy. He was like, this is, you know, these foreigners want to eat your food. And yeah, it was unreal. What inspired you both to leave the States and move to Japan? (laughs) That's another roundabout story. That's fine. 
people ask me this all the time and it's kind of a joke, but it's true. Like I've just had a series of coincidences and falling upwards, basically just saying yes to things. And, you know, here I am, but I guess the Japanese connection first started when I was in junior high school and I had a random pen pal program we had to do through history class. And then out of nowhere, my pen pal was like, Hey, I want to come visit you. And so she came and stayed with us for like three weeks. I mean, this was back in like the nineties before internet and stuff. And so it was really trusting of her yeah, to just randomly come over. But so that was pretty cool. And then when I got to university, I had to take you know a language requirement and I had studied Spanish in high school and I didn't really, didn't really speak to me too much. And so I just randomly was like, ah, I knew Junko, my pen pal. So I'll do Japanese. And I just randomly selected it. And then in that class met my partner, Ryan. Uh, he sat behind me. So we've been together 12 years now. And from that, my professor was like, you're not too bad at this. You should go study abroad. And I was like, okay, cool. And she's like, in fact, there's a new program I'm starting and it's in Osaka. So you can go there for a year and, you know, I'll, I'll recommend you. And I was like, okay. And so I got it. And I went to Osaka and studied there for a year. And that was like 2006. At that time, my partner was still in the States and he was like, hey, we should do the JET program. It's really cool. So you go and teach in like a municipal cities, like public school teaching in the exchange program. It's like, yeah, I don't know, maybe. Anyways, came home, graduated at the height of the U.S. economic meltdown. It's like 2007, eight. And I had two options, which is either pursue a master's PhD. At the time, what I thought I wanted to do was get a PhD in Japanese literature, which I'm really glad I didn't because I would have wound up teaching in like Nebraska or something probably. So instead we took the position offered to us and we both luckily got placed together in Hiroshima. Oh, wow. Actually, in a small town of Hiroshima called Kure. There's a new movie, a recent movie that just came out called In This Corner of the World. It's like an animation cartoon, but it actually takes place in the city we lived in. Mm-hmm. And it's so accurate that I can point to my house in certain parts of that movie. It's really beautiful. But anyways, so I taught public school there for five years and special needs education, actually. My background is in education. And so I, when that job ended, I took a job in Chiba. We lived in Chiba for a year and then moved closer into Tokyo. And we're still teaching. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you've spoken about Hiroshima and Osaka and Tokyo, we went to all of those places. So nice. Hopefully one day we'll come back. Yeah. Yeah. Hope you can. I'll be here. <laughs> so is that the grand plan? Is that you'll stay in Japan? I you know, I really don't know. My partner just got his permanent visa. So he could live here indefinitely if he wanted to, but it has to do with like your employment. And I've recently moved out of full-time teaching to work on embroidery, which unfortunately makes me less eligible or less stable, I guess. So I'm still on a year-to-year visa. And so it's hard to like think into the future when every year I have to like reapply for all these things. Yeah. Our current pipe dream is to find an abandoned school somewhere, wherever it may be, and buy it from the city or rent it on a hundred year lease from the city and do like an artist residency commune kind of thing I guess like my partner he does like records and we cook and so maybe we'll be here probably we'll be here I hope so hard to say but yeah Yeah. we'd like to do what made you leave teaching and do embroidery I mean I wish I could say I do embroidery full-time I don't but I for the lack of a better word like I was the breadwinner or like the real teacher in our partnership up until two years ago I mean basically deciding to leave the rat race I mean I love living in Japan 
but teaching in Japan as a foreign woman is quite challenging and they assume you're gonna get married and have children and so you don't get so many of the lucrative positions I mean that's not for everyone but that's the experience I've had is like it's really hard to find a lucrative position I mean I quit full-time work at the height of COVID which was in hindsight a great exercise in hubris but my new teaching position is really to be honest perfect and while it is part-time work I teach about 12 hours a week I teach my ideal age group for the most part, which is junior high school. Everyone thinks seventh and eighth grade is the worst, but I actually really like that age group. And so it's nice to like be able to teach that age group. I teach language arts to them, like they're native English speakers. They've been born abroad or have lived abroad for quite some time. So that's fun. And I've never had more autonomy teaching in Japan than I have at this current position. And yeah, it's really been awesome despite COVID. That's good. Yeah. But I would like to do embroidery more. I mean, it's a conversation I just had with my partner, actually. I don't think I could ever leave teaching for good. I'd like to reduce my hours a bit further, maybe. But I'm an educator by trade. I like kids. And we joke, too. Like, some people do Sudoku to keep sharp. Mm -hmm. Me hanging out with a bunch of 14-year-olds who are quite sharp (laughs) um, keep me sharp. (laughs) And so, you know, it's, it's good. It's a good thing. So at the moment, what's your balance of how many hours teaching and then how many hours doing embroidery? This year has been kind of like a learning curve. My last job, I had to commute an hour one way to get to work. And so I'd wake up at like four o'clock in the morning and do work and then go to work and then come home and repeat. But here, I'm not salaried anymore. I can mm. like, if I have a class third period, I can walk in five minutes before teach the class and then bug out and then I'm done which is awesome. Um, And so while I don't have like these long stints of sewing time, like I used to have, I have like little pockets, which has actually been much healthier. Yeah. I probably sew on a good day, left my own devices. I could easily sew for like five, six hours on a busy day, like two to three. When you're sewing in pockets, does that give you time to reflect, get away from what you're doing and then come back into it and keep going? Yeah. It's just been overall much healthier. (laughs) Yeah, I can easily be like a very like obsessed kind of focused person that way. And so it's been kind of nice. While I haven't made as large of pieces as I have in the past this past year, they have been more diverse, I think, because I have had the space to think about them. Like, what if I did this? What if I did that? And rather than just like focusing on a hyper repetitive piece, for example, it's been great that way. I really enjoy embroidery. Using secondhand materials is important to me. I really like the idea of mark making as an art form. Something small over time can have a huge impact if you focus. Yeah, which is kind of how I tend to exist. Focus, keep doing it, something good will happen. And for the most part, it has. (laughs) So if someone's listening to this podcast and they're thinking of taking up embroidery, where would you advise for them to start? Yeah, how should they start? Just start. (laughs) (laughs) Just start. Use what you have. You don't need new things. I didn't start with new things. I mean, to this day, I don't really use an embroidery hoop. I didn't try an embroidery hoop until like two years into it. Mm -hmm. So you don't need that, to be honest. I don't use DMC floss or anything fancy like that. I just use machine thread for the most part. The materials I use are really simple. And so I think with using what you have around you, it doesn't have to be perfect. The most important thing is just to start, I think so. There's a piece that you did and it's clumps of red thread on denim. Yeah. Can you explain that to me? It looks so effective. 
and you showed the front and you showed the back. A woman <laughs> reached out to me like a year ago now and she was, I really want to see the back. And it's like, okay. And so like, it's just a new practice I've incorporated of like, I'll photograph the back because the back's pretty messy. I really like, like I said, like mark making and texture and covering a space and like the feel of it. The red circles, I've done a few of the large circle pieces now, but that's kind of how my watercolor looked on a certain scale. But yeah, I like the idea of repetition, building something up over time that's small. And I, again, I really love watercolor and how like the colors kind of flow. And I think a lot of my work has like a kind of flowing, meandering aspect to it, which I think has come from the watercolor. But I'm a very goofy, flowy person that way. And so I think it's just my hand, like it's literally like my energy made physical, like through my hand, like it's is that clear? It's kind of hard to explain. <laughs> that's perfectly clear to me because okay. that's, that's what I see and it makes sense. Yeah. I look at my work and I see my personality and it, like I'm a pretty silly person. <laughs> when you're developing your pieces, would you reproduce them exactly or would you just continually make them in the way that you feel at that point in time? Like making a piece and then trying to reproduce it? Yeah. No. Like if there's a certain theme I enjoy, I'll try doing it again in different colors or different shapes. The square kind of geometric puzzle thingies I like to do. Like I like that motif, but I would never do like the same pattern repetition or the same colors even or the same size. Like I'll do this a different way. Like the red circle piece you mentioned earlier. Yep. I really want it to do like a much larger piece of that and have mm-hmm. it kind of like a gradiated maybe like circle going out. So it's still like using the same shapes, but in a different way, because honestly, it takes me so much time to make that if I were to reproduce it, I would never get done what I want to get done in a lifetime. So like, it takes too much time. So I was just trying to figure out, I've spoken to a couple of other people mm. in different types of sewing endeavors, mm-hmm. and they're fairly similar where they go with what they've got and they wouldn't even want to reproduce something that they've already done. I just get bored. Yeah. <laughs> I, just have a, I have a low attention span, to be honest. I just get bored. <laughs> um <laughs> There's, there's a lot I want to do. I was speaking to someone recently. They're always, people often say like, oh, your work looks so peaceful. Like you must like, it must, must be very meditative for you. It's like, no, actually, like if I could go faster, I would go much more faster. I need like five lifetimes, like for all the things I want to do. And so it's like, no, I don't want to reproduce like more. I just keep going, going, going. And so mm-hmm. I don't really identify with the slow stitch movement, to be honest. <laughs> I'm quite impatient. <laughs> I admire it, but yeah, I don't identify with it. What's your next development step for yourself personally? I would like to do bigger work, like tapestry work um, or just bigger wall hangings, because one of the things I struggle with is framing my work and then presenting it. I had an offer recently to exhibit August of next year. And the first thing I thought was like, oh my God, how am I going to frame it? Like, I'm really terrible at framing and displaying. And so I would like to be able to figure out how to display it better or maybe just bypassing framing altogether and just doing larger tapestries for example okay yeah (laughs) and that way people will see your work in real life yeah I'm terrible about reaching out to people to be honest like left to my own devices I am definitely a creature of solitary nature and there's nowhere I'd rather be than just working and so it's it takes time to reach out to galleries and to people to exhibit and I'm lazy I'm bad about that I need to get better or I'd be able to travel more when COVID's over to like display and stuff That would be good. (laughs) That's me. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah. I mean, I can be pretty chatty. Thank you. (laughs) Well, thanks a lot, Lindsay, for being on So Good Night Style Podcast. 
Yeah, it's been great. Thank you very much. This Mending episode of Soul Organized Style Podcast was produced by me, Maria Theoharis, with permission of Lindsay. Sound by bensound.com. If you're a keen sewist or a textile artist who endeavours to reduce landfill, have a listen to our library of mending and sewing safe guests who have given their time to talk about their valuable work. You can subscribe to Sew Organised Style Podcast, but with an S not a Z, on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google, Stitcher and anywhere you hear good podcasts. Post any questions or suggestions on our website at seworganisedstyle.com, on our Sew Organised Style Instagram account or on our Facebook page. We look forward to joining you in your sewing room next time. Stay safe, everyone.